Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Alison. And thank you to those who have been leading our praise this morning. There's a sense in which I, I could nearly sit down and not an awful lot more needs said. It's been such a good time of centering our thoughts on God this morning. But this morning we move uh, from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. We move from the time of the patriarchs uh, to that of the Exodus and the subsequent entry of God's people into the promised land. You'll remember, I trust over the last few weeks, that we've been looking at this great promise that God gave to Abraham and the people regarding their own land. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And as we move, we see a massive change in the lives of the people of Israel. They had been experiencing prosperity and freedom in the land of Egypt, but this was now soon to change. You'll recall that they had come to Egypt in order to escape the famine in their own land. Joseph had been sold as a slave by his brothers, but he ended up becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man. He had ruled Egypt and provided for the famine by having grain stored up during the seven years of plenty. You'll also recall that Jacob and his 11 other sons came to Joseph in Egypt and settled there, where they bought property, became fruitful, and increased greatly in number. Before he died, Joseph told his sons that God would come and take them out of Egypt and into the land that he had promised his great-grandfather, Abraham. And right at the end of Genesis, Joseph made them swear an oath that they would return to this land. And as we will see, that's what they did eventually. Now, let's read from Exodus chapter 1. And verses 1 to 7, the fulfillment of God's promise found in Exodus 46, verse 3. Remember these words, I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who entered Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. There's the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 46, verse 3. But notice verse 8. A new king, a new pharaoh came to power in Egypt. A new pharaoh who neither knew nor cared about what Joseph had done for Egypt. Instead of seeing the Israelites as his friends, he saw them as a threat. He saw how they, might, how they prospered and wondered that they might one day become so powerful that they might become allies with his enemies. And so, because of his fears, this king did three things. 
Pharaoh did three things. First, in verses 11 and 12, he took away the freedom the Israelites had. He put taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. He hoped to weaken the physical strength of the people and to crush their spirit. But that's not what happened because verse 12 says that instead of being crushed, the people grew stronger and increased in number. The more he oppressed them, the stronger they grew. And because his first plan failed, Pharaoh devised a second one, verse 15. He called in the Hebrew midwives and told them to kill all the male babies as they were being born. This would slowly exterminate the males and leave only the weaker female slaves, or so he thought. Verse 17 tells us that the midwives wouldn't do this terrible thing because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And as a result, God blessed the midwives with children of their own. And Pharaoh's second plan failed. Pharaoh, however, wasn't ready to give up. He had a further third plan up his sleeve. He had to get rid of the Hebrew males. So he ordered that every boy that was born had to be thrown into the River Nile. Genocide at its very worst. How many babies died this way? We simply do not know. And this leads us to chapter 2. Chapter 2, the story of the birth of Moses. The story of Moses is, to say the least, well known. A favorite of Sunday school children down through many, many years. A Levite woman gave birth to a son and she saw that the son was fine. And as one commentator puts it, this word fine in Hebrew meant that his beauty was seen as a peculiar token of divine approval and a sign that God had a special design or plan for him. As you read the story, you'll find that she hid him for three months. But the day came when she could no longer hide him at home. So she made a kind of, a kind of tiny ark, a papyrus basket coated with tar and pitch so it wouldn't sink. She placed the baby in the ark and placed the basket among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter came by, and when she saw the basket and the baby, she felt sorry for him. Now Moses' sister had been hiding and watching all that was happening. She went to Pharaoh's daughter and asked if she could get a Hebrew woman to nurse the child. And Pharaoh's daughter agreed, and Pharaoh agreed with his daughter, and she got her mother, who ended up nursing and looking after her own son. Verse 10. When the boy was older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And isn't that quite a remarkable story? We need to be very careful we don't let its familiarity rob us of its importance. Twice the mother gave up her son, first to the River Nile, and then at the age of two to Pharaoh's daughter. The second time must have been incredibly hard. But it seems to me that she knew exactly what she was doing. She was really giving up her son into God's hands and trusted that God would look after him. How do I know that? Hebrews 11 verse 23 says this about the incident. By faith, 
Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. She knew exactly what she was doing. The parents knew why they were doing what they were doing. Now let me ask us all a question this morning. How good are we at giving our situations over to God? To trust him. Sometimes to give him control over the people or the things or the circumstances that are most salient to us. To situations even that cripple us. In these opening verses we have seen how to respond to adversity. To fear God rather than man. To trust God. And what we see here is how God takes the very things that are against him and his people and uses them for our good. Another example of what David was speaking to, uh, speaking to us about last Sunday morning. And because God was at work, because God never lost control of the situation, this third plan by Pharaoh backfired as well. The river which was intended to be a river of death in fact became a river of life for Moses. Who would have known that this baby would years later be used by God to bring freedom and life to all of the Israelites? Pharaoh was trying to exterminate the Jews and his own daughter gave them life. And while Pharaoh was planning to exterminate them, God was preparing to deliver them. It was the very murderous demand by Pharaoh that led to the training and preparation of the human deliverer of Israel that Moses was to become. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. You see, by being in the king's court, Moses learned much of what he would later use to lead the people of Israel. And what an amazing turn of events we find in all of this. And as we said already, the very things that seem to be against us can be used by God to be for us. God's hand is in everything. At the time of trial or difficulty or pressure, we may not understand this. But often we can only see this later. Often only as we look back and reflect on our circumstances. We also see again that God is true to his promises. That's the thing we've been learning as we've been moving through the book of uh, Genesis and not least through the story of Joseph. God was taking the first steps and leading the people back to the promised land. And what an awesome God he is. An awesome God who doesn't change. And how we see his plans for us are consistent. But moving on in the story, at verse 11 of chapter 2, we have recorded for us one of the great tragedies of Moses' life. One day he came across an Egyptian ill-treating one of his Hebrew friends and his sectarian blood began to boil. 
So much so that, in fact, he murdered the Egyptian. And thinking that no one saw him, he hid his body in the sand. The following day, he discovered he had, been in fact, uh, he had in fact been seen. And what's worse, Pharaoh got to hear about it, and Moses ran for his life. And when you read the Bible carefully, you'll discover that Moses was in hiding for about 40 years. 40 years in hiding, 40 years running away from God, 40 years regretting his past. 40 years thinking he was finished, and 40 years feeling he was of no value to anyone. Turn with me to chapter 2 and verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help became... Uh, Because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You see, Exodus isn't just a story about Moses. Exodus is much more a story about God. God is hearing the groaning of the Israelites. God remembering his promise. God aware of their plight. And God concerned about their dilemma. But what about Moses? What was Moses doing? In verse 1 of chapter 3, Moses was doing what he did every day for the previous 40 years looking after the sheep belonging to his father-in-law. The closing verses of chapter 2 tell us about his marriage to Zipporah. For Moses, it was just an ordinary day. Sheep, sheep, and more sheep. But the ordinary day was soon to be changed into a really extraordinary day. And just how extraordinary. We see in chapter 3, verse 2, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Here was a man running away from life. Running away from what he had done. Running away from his past. Running away from himself. And in a very real sense, running away from God. He must have thought, nobody will find me here. I've been here for 40 years, untroubled. Here in the backside of the desert, as the AV puts it, I can forget about anyone finding me. But God did. Have a look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to Luke, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Moses, Moses. Do you remember something that Peter shared with us two Sunday evenings ago? A double call as for Jacob, Jacob. This time, it's Moses, 
Moses, I want your attention, Moses. Here was a man who thought he was safely out of sight. But now he knows that God has been aware of where he was all the time. All of those 40 years. And what was Moses' reaction? Well, you have it there in verse 6. One of fear and one of shame. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now read verse 7. The Lord said to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So what does God do? And who does God choose at such a time of concern? Well, God comes to a man. A man 80 years of age. In a desert. A murderer. One who would have never been given a second thought in most Christian circles today. And God comes to Moses, a reject, class one. But notice in these verses in chapter three, three three things, not about Moses, but three things about God. First of all, God's grace. Verse four, Moses called by God, called by name. Personally known by God. Verse 6. He reminds them that I am the God of your father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's quite startling really when you think about it. Most of us would like to be reminded of our pedigree as far as Abraham and Isaac were concerned. But God in his grace reminds them of who he was to Jacob, the twister. And verse 7, God says to him, listen, I'm concerned about my people. I'm concerned about their plight. And then in verse 8, I have seen, I have heard their cry, I know. And I have come down. And what an amazing message of grace. Moses must have often wondered about the conditions of the people he loved. And now he knows, hearing from God's lips himself, that God has been watching over them all of the time. And God, in his grace, comes to Moses. But notice, secondly, God's greatness. And I think we've had this already this morning in a little video clip that's just been shared with us. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God revealed his name. Jehovah, Yahweh, I am that I am. I was, I am, I always will be. And in this great statement, God assures Moses that as the great I am, he is always the same and his purposes will be fulfilled. And God promises Moses that he will see to it that his work is done, God's work is done. In spite of the opposition of Pharaoh, Have a look at verse 12, and there's a very important word here in verse 12. When you have brought the people of Egypt out. It doesn't say if you bring them out. It says when you bring the people out, not if. God's grace. 
God's greatness. And thirdly, in this passage, we see God's glory. Think about the situation for a moment or two. It was a barren desert. It was a very ordinary bush. It wasn't a great oak tree or a great cedar tree. Remember, God made all of that. But God comes to a very ordinary bush and he sets that bush on fire. And his presence is in that very ordinary bush. He comes to an old man, 80 years of age. He comes to a murderer. He comes to what we would have classed as a reject of society. And in verse 10 he says, Moses, I'm sending you the murderer, an earthen vessel, a jar of clay, indeed a cracked jar, who's going to be filled with the power and the glory of God. And Moses asks the question, who am I? And God says really in a sense the question should be, who are you, Lord? In some ways we admire Moses for his humility. Being the type of person he was 40 years earlier, Moses would probably have been fairly quick to promote himself, but perhaps the years in the desert had humbled Moses. And Moses' question displays his weakness, his feeling of inadequacy, his fear. But God reminds Moses who he is and what he can do. He says, I will be with you. That's the promise he gave to Moses. Indeed, it was a promise we'll see in coming weeks that sustained him for another 40 years. You see, who we are isn't all that important. That God is with us is important. And we are reminded in John chapter 15, verse 5, that without me, without Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. The glory had to belong to God, not Moses, and not us. So what was Moses' response? Well, Moses' excuses, sadly, was the response. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Who am I? And I've thought about that question, and I've wondered, what was on his mind when he said that? Who am I? Was he thinking of his past? Was he remembering with shame what he had done? Was it his lack of self-worth or self-esteem? Was it, in fact, his feeling of inadequacy? Who am I? In verse 14, he then says, well, supposing I did go, uh, what could I say? And in chapter 4, verse 1, he throws up another excuse. What if I do go and they don't believe me? And then in verse 10 of chapter 4, he lets God know as if God, as Sarah put it this morning, didn't already know. I'm not a good talker. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Not me, Lord. My past, my lack of ability, my concern that they won't listen to me or believe me, my speech. And what does God answer Moses at this particular point? Well, have a look at chapter 4, verse 2. Forget your excuses. Forget your inability. Forget your suitability and get concerned about your availability. What is it 
you do have. Moses, what's in your hand? What is it that you do hold in your hand? And it was a staff, a rod. To us, it was just a chunk of wood, if you like. Then read verses 4 and 5. Well, before you do that, think about what he asked Moses to do with that. He asked him to throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground. And he asked him to pick it up again. And if you know anything about snakes, and I know very little about snakes, but one thing I do know, never lift a snake by its tail. But God asked him to pick it up, and as soon as he put his hand on it, it became a rod again. And that's in verses 4 and 5. And God said, This is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Lord in the following verses showed him other miraculous signs, but still Moses displays his reluctance to obey God. Even to the very point in chapter 4 and at verses 10 to 13, we read this. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. What an insult to God, really, when you think about it. Moses said, send somebody else. How must God have felt at that point? Well, verse 14 gives us the answer. In today's language, God was fuming. He promised his presence. He promised success. Yet Moses says, send somebody else. Do you know what? In his grace... God agrees to send Aaron along with Moses. But notice verse 17. Take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. And it's as if God is saying, Moses, others may think your past disqualifies you from serving me, but not me, Moses. I know your past. I've dealt with your past. Moses had a past, a past he was ashamed of. And can I suggest that all of us here this morning have a past? And can I also suggest that some of us here this morning may be regretting our past in one way or another? Perhaps some of us are crippled by our past and we can't seem to find forgiveness or assurance that God has dealt with or can yet deal with our past. If Moses' life teaches me anything, and it has for a number of years, taught me a great deal, it teaches me that our God is a God of incredible, amazing grace. He plans for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Think again of Moses. God uses Moses in the place he put him and the circumstance he permitted. He put him in the river. 
part of God's plan and God's purpose. He put him in a palace, and God trained him and used him in that palace. He put him in the desert, and God disciplined him and used him in the desert. And as we see in coming weeks, God brought him to the Red Sea, an absolutely impossible situation by human understanding and reasoning. And God used him at the Red Sea and a number of other places. As we finish this morning, can I ask the question that you find in chapter 4 and at verse 2? What's in your hand? What is it that God has entrusted to you? What is it that God wants you to surrender to him, just as Moses had to surrender control of that rod? Moses was less than convinced about his ability and his suitability for what God was asking him to do. Yet all the time God was challenging Moses about his availability. The grace that reached down to Moses is the same grace that's extended to you and to me this morning. The Bible is littered with examples of small, weak, and insignificant things and people that God used to accomplish his plans and his purposes. You can no doubt think of some. I think of the Old Testament and David's sling. I think of the New Testament and the boys' lunch and so on and so on. And in a really strange way, all this week, I had in my mind the words of a chorus that I learned yonks ago. And I'm really going to declare my age this morning. And here they are. Shamgar had an ox goad. David had a sling. Dorcas had a needle. Rahab had some string. Samson had a jawbone. Moses had a rod. Mary had some ointment. And they all were used by God. What's in your hand? What's in my hand this morning that God wants surrendered to him?